This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, our old friend medievalist Jana Matthews is back. I always enjoy having her on, and I always learn a lot from her. After that, I include the second part of my conversation with Alicia from Woolshift Dust, who is covering the House of Usher adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's short story. I do take listener emails, book at baldmove.com. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Jana Matthews. Jana, I want to talk about a lot of things related to this chapter, but I want to notice first off that when Kat gets back to River Run, she kind of assumes the role of matriarch in a way that almost supersedes her younger brother, who's sort of acting Lord of the Castle. Yeah, that's I mean totally fascinating, and I think it fits really in nicely with the role of uh, the oldest daughter. And we kind of there's memes and jokes about that on TikTok all the time about. Uh, <laughs> and I think that as I was rereading this section, I re- reminded me of that that cat is you know falls into that category um, of somebody who really um, runs the household and, and kind of whips uh, the in this case whether the castle or the kingdom into shape. And she also chides her her brother. Yeah. Uh, right for his, I think was like his whoring and wenching, um, and so I, I think is is not a, is not afraid to call out bad behavior mm-hmm. and uses that moral stance to kind of justify her taking over and um, you know doing some house cleaning. It's almost like I don't know if she chides him, but it's sort of like she wants to dismiss it. Like, look, let's we're talking around something. I'm going to be direct with you. I know how yeah. things work in the world. Let's move on to more important things. Absolutely. And he kind of blushes about it because he kind of, you know, would prefer that, you know, he seems lordly or something. Um, whereas she's kind of viewing him as, you're my little brother and I know I know how you act. Let's pass right on by your wenching and move on to more important things. Yeah, and there's also this sense of that there's multiple ways that, that she really understands how to run a kingdom and a kingdom is about the like like as you said the logistics and about getting your hands dirty yeah. and doing the practical work and he's about performance and performativity uh, about what a lord looks like and she knows what to do and is kind of like well it's uh you know it's time to stop playing around 
Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Not only that, but she questions, openly questions his battle strategy. Which it seems to me, and and I'll ask for your correction, but it seems to me like if she were just ordering people around the castle, that's fine. That's her domain, even if it's not, you know, actually her castle anymore. But to to kind of like openly question battle strategy is, it's almost like, uh, look, if you're going to do that, we got to do that in private here. I can't have you besmirching my manhood in public. Yeah. I mean, she's, she doesn't pull any punches when she, um, you know, she comes in into, there's definitely a, a rank pulling that happens. Mm. And it's this, is this uncon, it's a sort of historically unconventional mode where as the younger brother, regardless of your gender, you know, you are, uh, you're, you're still uh, in a position of power. Mm. She steps in and she's, she says, okay, well, that's fine. You can hold that title, but, um, but I'm the one who's going to call the shots here. And and also she demonstrates pretty quickly that she has spent her time gathering information and synthesizing that. And so she's much better equipped than he is Mm -hmm. much more concerned about domestic personal, um, you know, issues to wage this war, to be able to, uh, you know, manage what's coming next. I'll read my uh, introduction to this chapter. So this is Kat's fifth POV in Clash. On the ride to River Run, Kat is met by a scout who is meant to escort her home. Brienne asks to return to the Stormlands, but Kat asks her to fight for Rob. Brienne suggests that she would rather be a liege to Kat herself, provided that Kat will not hold her from avenging Renly's death. The two women exchange vows and continue on to River Run. Once home, Edmure and Kat exchange stories, and Kat second guesses her brother's battle plans. She visits her dying father and views the bones of her dead husband. Dr. Jana Matthews, what shall we talk about today? Ooh, there's so much to talk about, but I would love to talk about Brienne because she is such an interesting character. I know. I was thinking, you know, when I saw this chapter coming up, I thought, I, I got to see if Jana's available. I have a number of questions about Brienne, but no, here I'd like go. to hear you talk a little bit about Brienne and, and it could be that some of my questions are answered. I mean, she's a, a fascinating character and uh, an invention. Um, but also is kind of pulled from historical precedent, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about. But as the sole child of Lord Zelotarth, um, she is in a really unique position. Um, and she 
uh, normally I think would be married off historically, and that would be her kind of her the way of keeping the lineage alive. Um, but also her role would be in relationship to her husband mm-hmm. or to a um, an, a male relative. But she doesn't do that. She turns down uh, opportunities to marry kind of right and left. And um, she's also interestingly like named Maid of Tarth and also th- throughout this chapter refu- referred to as beauty or like, which is mm-hmm. a name for Brienne the Beauty, which is in reference, a kind of a mocking reference to her um, untraditional or, or non-conventional um feminine you know female looks like she's not viewed as as being conventionally pretty and i think that that's an interesting um thing to think about that you you can't that in this text or at least with the figure of brienne you can't have both she can't be conventionally pretty she has to look like a man right and and Mm. both in stature and also in, in 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 comportment um, and that was an interesting stylistic choice, which we we can and can't talk about. But I mean, I, I think you mentioned that she started out as being um, as be, wanting to be a liege um, and dedicate herself to following Cat, and that kind of comes on the heels of serving as part of Renly Baratheon's Kingsguard, mm-hmm. which is of itself a notable feat because she is a woman. And when he dies and she witnesses that death, she's taken a vow um, to uh, an informal vow right, to seek revenge on him and and that relationship between Renly and Branley, at least in the sort of the backstory or history of that is is important and interesting because he is one of the only people that defends her that doesn't mock her mm-hmm. for encourages her for being who she is and so she's kind of devastated when when he dies so there's an, an interesting humanizing component of um, of who she is but also helps explain why she's on kind of a rampage to put it um mildly at least later on in the series uh, to to, to seek out justice. All right. So I'm glad that you brought up the liege thing because that was one of my questions. And I guess this is sort of, this is a question sort of beyond my expertise. Um, mm-hmm. But what she suggests is that I could be your liege man mm-hmm. or whatever you would have me be. Yeah. And she uses the word man, like I could be your man. Yeah. And so I'm wondering and of course, I think that elsewhere she, you know, eschews the title lady. Yes. And so the question is, is this just a title thing? Or does she, or should we be looking at her gender identification differently? Well, that's a really great question. I, I think it's both. Um, so there really isn't a vocabulary then and even maybe up until the past two or three years where we've kind of gone gender neutral um, and, and started re- started taking the, a lot of those names and, and moving them into, into sort of different kind of categories mm-hmm. to talk about what it would be like there. It was inconceivable and also linguistically inconceivable to have a liege woman or a liege person. Um, and so that's why that, that's part of the reason why she hesitates. Right? So it's part of it's a linguistic thing. I don't know what you I don't I don't fit the category. I don't know what you want to call me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't really fit into these categories, and I recognize that. So it's, it's partially that, um, and then partially it's the fact that it's a that type that name goes along with the title, in that she's also Brand's also saying to her, um, I I can't be a knight. Um, I, it's not within the social structure to allow me. So in addition to not identifying with, um, maybe perhaps either, either gender, not fitting neatly into that category, I also don't fit neatly into this 
hierarchy of jobs and duties and titles and responsibilities. And so, I mean, it's, she, Brianna, it maybe expresses simultaneous um, acknowledgement, but also I think it's a moment of, of, of implicit power. And then, and Catelyn rec- recognizes that tremendously because having someone who doesn't fit any categories enables her to really be mm. whatever she wants. Mm. Um, and so that's, is not the tension with brand throughout is this, I don't fit in. I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing. I kind of get the sense with Brienne that everything was set up for her to sort of be a failure in the society <laughs> that, yeah. you know, around her. And yet she was so close to it. I mean, yeah, of course, like she's never, no one's ever going to call her a knight in mm-hmm. this world, but even better than being a knight is being a member of the Rainbow Guard, right? And yeah. she's never going to like have Renly's love requited. Mm-hmm. But maybe even better than that from her view, like she can be wholly devoted to him and serve on you know, serve in a way that, you know, is on her terms. And so it's almost like against all odds, things have kind of broken her way and then just as soon as she has them they're like snatched away by dark magic right Renly's killed by a shadow and that's it and all of the things that she thought she would never have she finally got and she just got enough to taste them and now they're gone and so I, I, I almost feel like we're meeting her at this moment of tragedy in her story yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting that you mention her love for Renly because I think that's a that's an interesting term. I mean, we it's throughout this series, um, we we want to our natural instinct, um, and when you think about the the television series, there's this constant like, when is Brienne gonna fall in love? As if that is the only option mm-hmm. for her. Um, and we see that with Renly, and that I think it's you know, we can read that relationship as, um, as unrequited love or love that, that a romantic love that can never be met Mm. as a form of desire, but also can, you know, it could be referring to a different kind of love. It could be like a love of respect and a love of companionship or, um, a friendship or a brotherhood. Right. Yeah. The vassal scissored relationship is sometimes described in terms of love. Right. I've always described in terms of that. And so I I think too, you know, we see her as, um, as someone who consistently chooses to exist outside or, or by fate chooses to exist outside that paradigm or resist that mode of, of, of love. And, and she is consistently seen as a failure because of that, right? She's a, a single woman, but I'm not sure she sees herself as that. Um, and in fact, like, you know, the oaths that she makes when we think about oath making and the different kinds of oaths, but like, I mean, knights make oaths, but also people who are married and who are in love make oaths. Mm-hmm. The oaths, she's one of the only ones in this whole series and book series who actually keeps the oaths that they make. So she's mm-hmm. more devout and more committed than people who make oaths to each other in different contexts. And I think that's a, a, a a point that Martin, you know, allows her to make and to demonstrate in um, in pretty remarkable ways. Mm. I'm just going to read this uh, section from Cat. So far, we only view Brienne through Cat's eyes, right? So, mm-hmm. um, this is how Cat 
views Brienne in this chapter. She says, Catelyn should not have been surprised. The homely young woman had kept to herself all through the journey, spending most of her time with the horses brushing out their coats and pulling stones from their shoes. She had helped Shad cook and clean, game as well, and and soon proved that she could hunt as well as any. Any task Cat asked her to turn to, turn her hand to, Brienne had performed deftly without complaint, and when she was spoken to, she answered politely, politely. But she never chattered or wept or laughed. She had ridden with them every day and slept among them every night, without ever truly becoming one of them. It was the same when she was with Renly, Cat thought. At the feast, in the melee, even in Renly's pavilion with her brothers of the Rainbow Guard. There are walls around this one higher than Winterfell's. And so I thought, all right, this is a fascinating window. Of course, uh, Kat can sometimes be an unreliable narrator, but I think that her eyes are pretty astute here. Um, Not only is she kind of observing that Brienne does the work that would normally uh, normally a man would do right the the hunting and the, the you know the the work with the outdoor work basically sure. um but in addition to that she almost views Brienne as something of a psychological fortress like there are walls around this one that are higher than winterfell um i i just thought that was an interesting way to introduce a very unique character in the story. I love that uh, that term psychological fort- fortress. I think it really um, applies to Brandon. At this stage, we don't know if those wall- walls are self-constructed mm-hmm. or how much of them. We, we know that they've been constructed by others, um, even from the, the passage that you read where they don't, the people that she's around, the men don't know what to do with her, um, but we don't know to what extent she's tried to break through them or what resistance, mm. but we do, well, all we do know is that they're, that they're there. Right. Yeah. And just to kind of put this chapter in context, uh, pretty, pretty <laughs> in pretty close relationship to this chapter, the walls of Winterfell will be breached. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the Greyjoys will come to town and the walls will be meaningless. And so, I don't know if that's an intentionality thing. Uh, I don't know if Martin intends to kind of parallel that, but I'm going to cough here. Give me a minute. Sorry about that. <clears throat> um, but it's like, yeah, the, the, she has high walls around her, but it's not like she's, it's not, this is not a fortress that can stand um, against right. all, you know, all attackers. So there's there's a bit of vulnerability to her, and yet she has something of a, I guess, knightly exterior, even though she can't really be called a knight, which kind of leads me to my next question. Is Brienne a knight? Mm-hmm. I mean, you said she's one of the few people that actually keeps her vows, and vows make the knight, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess from one perspective, you could say... No, she she can't be a knight in this world. But I wonder if you could reflect on that. I, I this is part of um or, or drawn from a world where 
titles and the authority that bequeath them mean everything. Mm. And so on, so in that sense, yeah, I mean, like there's always a gap and a hole where she doesn't have the official, at least at this stage in the game, right? Have the official marker um, or, or banner as knight. On the other hand, this is also a world where rules are made to be broken and where oaths um, mm. are, are are not required, right? that they're not documented. And even the, and oftentimes the most powerful oaths are those that are formed informally. Mm. And so even when you think about, um, you know, marriage, which is, which is sort of an, another common oath, right? You, the, the idea that you can, you can be considered legal, you can be considered married if you've made a vow to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and there doesn't have to be other people present for that. And so, um, and, and so I, I think about Brienne and how that's the, the status that she has afforded or the way that she's viewed by other people is essentially of an event of a night. She doesn't have a Lord, um, an official lord who recognizes her she doesn't have insignia mm. um, she's not part of a a larger community uh you know she but but she looks like a knight she acts like a knight yeah she's missing the social structure right right that would make the category work but it's almost like clinging to cat might be the closest she's going to get now that renly's gone and it's fascinating that she clings to Kat as a woman. And so she's constructing the two of them together, constructing an alternative version of knighthood. Um, one where you've got a woman who has the power to bestow and bequeath mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, that title onto others and those and the other who has the the ability to make a vow um, and to form that social bond with each other. So it's, it's really kind of this uh, remarkable, remarkably like subversive act. Would now be a good time to ask you about the Joan of Arc parallels? Sure. Okay. Uh, it, that she, Brienne falls into that category of somebody who you know you immediately want to make parallels between Joan of Arc, and there are um, a lot of parallels. Um, both of them, I think, most importantly, exist in this kind of mythic ethos that it's hard to discern fact from fiction between you know who Joan of Arc was as a person and what she really did versus what the the stories that were told about her and Brienne similarly as the story will unfold kind of falls into that category she's um, she's mythic um, both in nature and stature but also her, some of her feats now I just just for folks who don't really have a frame of reference could yeah, you give us right. kind of a, a a sketch of Joan of Arc like when did she live yeah. what did what did she do what was her legacy. So Joan of Arc was born in uh, 1412 in France. And at that time, France and England were were sort of in the midst of the Hundred Years' War. So they're battling back and forth. And in the place where Joan of Arc lived, she lived in northeast France. And that was occupied by England at that time. So even including her hometown. So there's lots of kind of simmering tensions there. And then when she was about 13, she started hearing voices that she claims were sent from God. And these voices told her that she was supposed to save France by expelling the enemies. And at the same time, she took a vow of chastity and kind of dedicated herself um, in, to, to France and to the king. And she, and when she was about 18 or 19 years old, she attracted a band of followers and somehow got a local magistrate to give her supplies and more supplies. And then she traveled um, to the place where the king was, the King Charles of France in Chignon. And he remarked and asked for an army. And he had heard rumors about this woman warrior, um, even though she was really untested, but believed her that God had given her the power to 
um, to conquer mm. or vanquish the enemy. And so he gave her what she asked for. And she ended up fending off the siege of Orleans in 1429. And she was dressed in white armor and riding a white horse. So the legends or so the stories say. Um, she was eventually sort of quickly captured by the enemy and was put on trial for heresy um, and was because women are not supposed to be able to talk to God um, mm. and was ultimately convicted of heresy um, and then uh, was burned at the stake and died. So she lived a very, very short life, but really like the afterlife of her and the story of a woman warrior and the sort of the salvific figure that came in through this this um this individual kind of extended and created a lore that lasted and persisted throughout the Middle Ages and even today. And do we have a sense of a lot of a lot of times when women are presented in these old narratives, sometimes it will give you some description of of their physique? Um, it depends on the sources, and a lot of those sources come after the fact. Um, and so we know that she was described as being a maid and and so had presumably traditionally feminine features. Uh, we also know that she was mistaken for a man in large part because she dressed herself. I mean, she cut her hair short. She, and this is a sort of rumor, dressed in men's clothing. Mm -hmm. um, she was commanded by the, by the, essentially the inquisition to kind of like take off her clothes, off her men's clothes and act like a woman. She agreed, but only momentarily, then went back to her room and kind of changed into men's clothing. And that was sort of the beginning of the end for her or the final straw. Mm. So the resonance to Brienne in terms of looking like a man, um, to use those kinds of terms, are, are, are pretty striking. Um, and I'll also say that that, that we the records show that I, I kind of postdated her a little bit. We have ever the approximate age at death was between kind of 17 and 19. Okay. Kind of yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the reason that I ask about that is because I some of our discussion of Brienne's gender does kind of hinge on the way that she's described and her clothing. Mm -hmm. In this chapter, she had to cast off a lot of her clothing. She did keep the the cape, mm -hmm. and yet, you know, she was sort of piecemeal put together some, you know, some of the men's clothing to put on, but they didn't quite fit her because she was even larger than the men. And so it's interesting that there is that sort of woman dressed in men's clothing yeah. thing that's happening with both of these. Do we have any kind of insight into what her motivations were? Was that just what she was most comfortable wearing or she just didn't like what was on offer? Or what, what was the, yeah. what was the, do we have any insight into yeah, so, her? I mean I think it's a combination of all those things. It's really hard to ride a horse in a dress. Um, mm. But also she saw herself as being uh, as, as being a leader, as a militaristic leader. And the model for militaristic leaders in that era was uh, dressed in armor and, you know, dressed like a man. Mm -hmm. So I, I do want to call out a really what I think is a really fascinating theological conversation between Kat mm -hmm. and... And uh, Brienne. Yeah. And I think this is sort of a, I think you have to read this as a departure from any kind of Joan of Arc parallel uh, because of the stance that Brienne takes. But here's what the passage says. Catelyn glanced across the camp. Two men were walking sentry, spears in hand. I was taught that good men must fight evil in this world. And Renly's death was evil beyond doubt. Yet I was also taught that the gods make kings, not the swords of men. 
If Stannis is our rightful king, and then Brienne interrupts, he's not. Robert was never the rightful king either. Even Renly said as much. Jamie Lannister mm-hmm. murdered the rightful king. After that, Robert killed his lawful heir on the trident. Where were the gods then? The gods don't care about men no more than the kings care about the peasants. A good king does care. That's that's how Cat mm-hmm. ends that conversation. We don't have a lot of theological insight into the faith of the seven, and yet this is a really interesting theological conversation. Cat's taking the view, sort of like sometimes St. Paul will say things like this. He'll say things like, um, well, you know, the, the rulers of this world are put in place by God. Uh, and then other times, you know, Paul will kind of undermine that that idea. Brienne's taking a very different view, and that is to say, gods are so far removed from the politics of this world that they don't even consider who's sitting on the throne. Uh, and the analogy that she gives is just like kings are really not concerned with what farmers are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, in this way, almost, um, Brienne's almost taking kind of a deist point of view. Uh, where a cat traditionally, theologically political, I suppose. So this is sort of, this would absolutely be a departure from Joan of Arc, right? Yeah. And also, also think about it from Brienne's perspective. Like, why would she have that viewpoint? What would, how would that benefit her own worldview? I, I think like, if God doesn't care who sits on the throne, he's not paying attention to the minutia of how social systems are ordered. He's not going to care what you're gender is or your assigned gender is about who's being a knight it isn't she she's she's i think it's a really revelatory about how she's kind of identified or how she's made peace or kind of come to come sense of who she is and how that models well in addition to that it's like where's justice all right that that's mm-hmm. kind of like she wants brianne is the kind of person who wants to do the right thing she wants to right. to enact justice in the world and yet if renly can be killed by a shadow where where is it? It, it are the maybe the gods just aren't paying attention in that view yeah. um I, and i you know cat witnessed the same event and kind of came to a different theological conclusion but they're kind of both working this out in real time and i just thought it was a really interesting window into sort of two different views of how politics relate to the gods Right. Absolutely. I love that too. I think that you've done it. That's a really, really insightful observation. I love the idea that they're kind of working it out in real time um, because this is just really the the first moment in which they're trying to negotiate what their relationship is to each other and, um, and, and charting a path forward. Mm-hmm. I always feel like Brienne's sort of taking the voice of Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's almost saying, you know, something like, look, the life of the mortal is fleeting. And uh, on a cosmic scale, scale, it really doesn't matter. And we kind of can supply meaning if we, if we try. But it's almost like she's in a sort of state of nihilism. Nihilism, yeah. yeah. I just need that um, Not only is that interesting to me, as sort of a, someone who does religious studies, but it's also interesting in the sense that we see, I think, two major differences between the book and the show. And the first is that 
Kat really does present as a very religious person. You know, she's praying in the Sept in the previous chapter. She's sort of praying uh, for wisdom for her son in this chapter. And then, of course, the second difference in the show between the book and the show is that Brienne, I think she's she, there's more depth to Brienne in this on the pages. You really see her as a as a person who's a deep thinker. And I don't feel like that was really revealed in the show. I totally agree with you. Um, I think this this serves as a as a really fascinating window. She's a multifaceted character, at least she's presented in this chapter, and we're allowed to see her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, as you pointed out, in a moment of tragedy, in a moment of pain, um, and in the show, sometimes I feel like her pain is reduced to being kind of a the object of mockery and ridicule and having to defend herself mm. or being a, being an object of like unrequited love, like someone who, who who's unlovable. And that always irritated me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I love that. That's that he's, uh, it's, it's much more nuanced. All right. So one other thing about this little exchange between Kat and Brienne, and that is she introduces in other words Brienne introduces her perception of Jamie Lannister in this exchange she says Jamie Lannister murdered the rightful king and i kind of feel like in in the word murdered is italicized in the text yeah. and you really get a sense that she has a particular view of Jamie Lannister it's repulsive to her like how could someone on the king's guard kill the king? This is anathema. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of reading into the <laughs> into the text, but you do get you do hear the name Jamie Lannister on her lips for the first time here, and I thought that was interesting. Just seeing how the arc of their relationship develops. Mm-hmm. I Brand's interesting because she also tends to see things in black and white. You just described her viewpoint theologically as nihilistic which i would also agree but while she may be while she may view the relationship between the cosmos and or between heaven and earth as being you know kind of it doesn't matter or i'm not going to think about it she has really really definite opinions about people and about justice and about right and wrong um and so i think in addition to that you get this whole sort of spew of you know like renly's death was a murder something that needs to be avenged not part of this complicated mm. kind of uh, tragedy or, or, pro- or, by, or, you know, unfortunate byproduct of war. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's what this driving sense of, of black and white thinking that um, it, that really propels her forward. And I think the, to your point, when he was, she was talking about Jamie Lannister also serves as the, as the breach. I mean, he teaches her, his relationship with her is the first kind of moment, perhaps the only one where relationship where she, he, she starts to see things in color mm. Um, at least in the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a couple other really interesting things about this chapter I want to call out here. Um, so when they show up, when I'm sorry, when Kat returns to Riverrun, she sees three Lannisters hanging from the walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of a really public display of, you know, this is what we do to... Lannisters. And this kind of shocks Cat at first. She's like, This you murdered envoys. 
And this sort of mm-hmm. repulses her. Like, how could you? That's political anathema. Then there's an explanation that they were false envoys. And one of the things that they said was, well, they were really here to try to free uh, Jamie Lannister. And it's sort of, we see the fruition of, of uh, Tyrion's plot, and it comes to naught. But uh, one of the things that Edmure says is, they ate my food and drank wine at my table for three days and then they you know they did these acts of violence and tried to free jamie lannister and ended up murdering a few people and i thought that that was a little foreshadowing of the red wedding they were under his roof right yeah absolutely i mean the red wedding uh is guided by a principle of polite conduct and you know sort of very spoken and articulated social norms about when you when you invite somebody to your house then you hospitality reigns supreme and you don't you know you don't murder you don't do all these things and um, and absolutely I mean so they're the envoys were false because they did deliver a message but they lied um and then they went beyond the bounds of what an envoy is supposed to do they broke the um you know they made an oath they had about not intended an oath but they had had an agreement and they broke that social code um, and when you break a social code, you're untrustworthy and like all bets are off. Right. And I think that it's sort of a little reminder that, yes, there are social norms, right? Mm-hmm. But they <laughs> they absolutely can be broken. I mean, you, you said earlier yeah. in this conversation, uh, yeah, of course, uh, you know, in Martin's world, the rules are almost made to be broken. And so you almost get the sense that people that put too much faith that people are going to act in a certain way because of the social consequences if they don't. I mean, those norms are only reliable until they're not. Right. And and so that even though we have social codes, there's um and rules, there's always the risk and the very real risk that they're going to be violated or broken. Mm-hmm. And so the um there's not a lot of and I think we have that today too, right? We we have we, we trust that people are going to act in good faith. Um but we always go in with a little bit of an edge, a little bit of a, a vein of suspicion mm-hmm. about them, prepared if they don't. And we don't carry swords with us, but we do um, carry the ability to email them or to yell at them or to do whatever. Or to you know, take legal of, action or whatever. Actually, they could take legal action against them, right? If they don't follow through with a contractual yeah. obligation, for sure. Um, at one point, uh, her father is sort of he's got his timelines mixed up, right? He's sort of like, he feels like he's living in a previous era of time and he thinks he's talking with her sister. He thinks he's talking with Lysa. And he mentions uh, that, that he doesn't want to hear any more about this stripling boy. And mm-hmm. I immediately thought, oh, he's talking about Peter Baelish. Mm-hmm. Sort of making advances mm-hmm. on Lysa. And Lysa doesn't want to marry an older man. And I'm kind of reading between the lines here, but... It kind of shows that Kat doesn't really have a full view of Baelish's relationship with her sister because she doesn't immediately think, oh, well, he's talking about Peter Baelish. She's like wondering, I wonder who he meant by the stripling boy. Yeah, I think that that's going to be a um, right. Like I said, to back up, that like serves as a revelation of of Kat not only being an unreliable narrator, but a. Um, not a perfectly informed narrator. Yeah, right. Um, There's also a mention that Rob bypassed a fortress called the Tooth. And there is a little mention that 
he decided not to not to try to take the castle, but rather to sneak around it. And this is sort of like how 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 did he possibly do it? And the rumor is that he he was guided by Grey Wind. Now, the only reason I bring this up is because I think this is the closest evidence we have that Rob has some kind of psychic connection with his wolf. Mm-hmm. That his wolf his wolf can find a goat trail and then Rob can follow it. Otherwise, we don't really have any insight into the 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 warging abilities of Rob Stark, but I feel like this is maybe the closest we get to to talking about that. And and there is a mention like that's not a regular wolf. That that wolf is uh you know, that wolf was sent by the gods. Um so anyway, I thought that that was a uh, notable uh, to point out. That is interesting. All right, um introductions in the chapter we hear of uh Thomas or not Thomas the rhymer. <laughs> I was thinking about the the actual uh, guy. Um uh Ryman the rhymer, maybe maybe an- historical analog to Thomas the rhymer. But he he's mm-hmm. a uh he's a singer and he's come to court to kind of pump up the the reputation of Rob, and he's created a song called Wolf in the Night. Okay. And, of course, you know, if you want to be a good king in this world, you need at least one singer who's on your side, right? You need, you need the propaganda machine, <laughs> right? Um, we meet Desmond Grell for the first time, and uh, Utheride's Wayne... And Robin Rager, I, I think we might have met Robin Rager once before. Um, and then, of course, uh, we meet for the first time uh, Maester Vyman. You know, we're sort of introduced to Brienne's allegiance to Cat in this chapter, of course. Um, departures, notable departures. Well, the three false envoys are dead now. And then they freed Jamie. For a moment, and he and Jamie got himself a sword and killed Paul Penford and uh, Miles, who is a squire. So they they both are introduced and depart from the narrative uh, in this short telling of the exploits of Jamie Lannister. Um, and I think we've already talked a little bit about the show differences. A lot of this is framed differently in the show, but I, I think that the most interesting thing to me is the difference in Brienne's character. Absolutely. And now part two of my conversation with Alicia about Edgar Allan Poe's House of Usher. A spoiler warning, we do indeed talk about some of the details of the short story, but at the point of this conversation, neither of us had watched any of the Netflix adaptation. So if you've read the short story... Enter with caution. If you've read the short story and watched the entire Netflix adaptation... No worries at all. All right, here's Alicia. I feel like we should talk, before we talk about anything else, talk about kind of the setting, the the world mm-hmm. that's created by this first segment of the story, which I think probably does point us in the direction of Martin, or at least Martin, at least, is consciously including homages to this setting. Right. Um, and I was thinking Hall, and I'm glad that you mentioned Hall because it, it, it affirms what I was thinking. Yeah, because Hall stands out amongst, you know, all of the 
buildings in uh, the world of A Song of Ice and Fire as the one that, yeah, it just, something feels wrong about it. It just gives yeah. people a bad feeling. Right, 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 right. Not just its lack of luck, but just uh, something icky. So I wanted to read this little section here and see if this struck you as interesting. About the whole mansion and domain, there hung an atmosphere peculiar to themselves and their immediate vicinity, an atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, but had reeked up from the decayed trees and the gray wall and the silent tarn, a pestilent and mystic vapor, dull, sluggish, faintly discernible, and leaden-hued. So I draw that out because it almost feels like there's this heaven and hell duality happening right, in the story, and it almost feels like if you're living on the earth and you're breathing the air... You're a creature of heaven. Of course, hell's not too far away below your feet. But in this particular place, the atmosphere is not coming down from heaven. It's coming up from hell. That's kind of the sense I got from that paragraph. What do right. you think? I mean, yeah, I, I guess it's linking to whatever this, um, they they call it a, a dungeon spelled, I guess, this 18th century way, D-O-N-J-O-N. Um where, yeah, and this is, again, we're in the spoiler territory where once the sister passes away, they store her body. Um, and they're creating this sense of, of dread uh, connected with that, with that mm -hmm. sort of makeshift crypt. And I, for me, that seems like the point of the story that I wonder, you know, of course, you know, she comes, she gets back up at the end and she appears all bloody. And mm -hmm. um, our, I guess we can assume it's a reliable narrator. He sees her, so that must have happened, but that could be medically possible. But I do wonder if this is one of those stories that's in that realm that I was taught in literary college, you know, um, was the fantastique, which is where it's not neither confirming supernatural elements or not. Mm. Um, and maybe the sickness comes from within, from, you know, the, the just the sickness of this. I know they're going to play up this part in the Netflix adaptation, Um that's about like the sickness of this family and their clinging to money and power and what they'll do for that. So, and this is something that Martin does a lot in his work in that when he first introduces something that has a magical property, it doesn't smack you in the face as, Hey, there's something supernatural happening here. It kind of almost uh, disguises itself as, is this psychology? Is this, superstition you know th there might be an is this literary illusion you know you when you first encounter something like this in martin's world you think well there could be a lot of explanations for this magic isn't necessarily the only way to explain what's happening here right uh, and i almost feel like in maybe he borrowed that from poe in this story it's it's very much a psychological and physical condition that may or may not be related to kind of some hell, hell-born curse or something. I mean, I guess you see that in a lot of horror as well. But it's yeah. sort of a slow burn into the horrific here. But I feel like I guess maybe you see it in a lot of horror because a lot of horror also pulls from mm -hmm. from Poe. I mean, of course, there were other. You know, you also cited Lovecraft earlier, but he, I don't think he's quite doing the same thing with. You know, he has that. 
they also they both explore that sense of dread. Mm, um, mm-hmm. But Poe's really looking at the familial connections because, you know, he had a very complicated family life himself, um, becoming orphaned at a young age and raised by parents who um, never officially adopted him. And he had a tumultuous relationship with them throughout his life until that, you know, his foster mother also died. Um, so he's he's writing from a place with a lot of familial strife himself and uh, pain. So I want to talk about the family element here because I, I'm really, you know, I'm halfway through reading rereading Clash right now, and I'm really getting the sense that repeated over and over and over in Martin's world is this in-world sensibility that you can predict what someone will do by looking at their family inclinations. Right. You know, okay. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's like ironborn are always going to act like ironborn. So why, why think that Theon is any different? Um, or, you know, Lannisters are always going to be greedy above everything else. Right. Uh, why try, or Freys are always going to be self-serving and cowardly and, you know, whatever. It almost feels like Targaryens are always going to conquer. Right. Uh, but, know, that, that's the kind of the feeling I get from yeah. Martin's world. Yeah, especially with a character like Sansa where the question becomes, well, is she a Tully or is she a Stark? It's yeah. not, you know, <laughs> is she going to be her own person? <laughs> right, right, right. And I think it's a very old sensibility. I, I, I lived for a couple years in, in central Illinois, and I've lived all over the world. I've lived in Canada and Zimbabwe and England, and and I never felt more culturally alienated than when I was living in central Illinois because there was a sense that if we don't know who your grandfather is, we can't trust you. Right. And I think that's a, a very old tribal view of things that I think can easily lead to prejudice. And so I think that in many ways, I th- I think that there's a problem here that we experience in Clash because... It's like if maybe if the Starks treated Theon better, maybe he th- they would have had right. a different a different relationship with him in the end. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. Is it a, a self fulfilling prophecy? Is it is do we hate Lannisters? You know, this is Catelyn sort of capturing Tyrion in Book One or whatever. Would would the story have unfolded if she didn't have a, a, a Lannister prejudice? Well, I guess Jamie and Tyrion are the ones who only only ones who somewhat defy their family expectations. Right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But in many ways they are both you know, they're both fighting for their family. And, right. And, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that Tyrion absolutely is was the person who's propping up Joffrey. Right. And of course Jamie's going to do anything for his sister, right? So Yeah. Uh, even if they kind of feel the heaviness of doing that, maybe they, they hate their family. They're they're still going to be very tribal. But especially with, I feel like, especially with the events of Clash, where Theon is trying is basically kind of falling back into this old Ironborn. Mm-hmm. I guess the old this old Ironborn tradition. Yeah. 
no one is for the Ironborn. Everyone is against the Ironborn, and that is partially because the Ironborn is against everyone else. Right. And, of course, the, you know, maybe this is also going to play out in Theon's narrative. And my my feeling is that, like, he's living into this family narrative that was decided a thousand years ago. Yeah, but I feel like uh, um, a lot of people, if they move back to a conservative place that they're from, um, they might find themselves under the same pressures to conform. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and Theon has a, a problem with the the drowned god, and he doesn't. You know, he's trying to have a little healthy skepticism about that whole business. Um, so anyway, I, back to the House of Usher here. I feel like when the main who's do we know the main character's name? I I probably mm, I think anyway they do. Oh, I don't have the book in front of me, but I, he does reference him once by name toward the end. Okay, all right. When the you know when the POV character in this short story arrives and sees Roderick Usher, and he he kind of repeats for the audience that this is their fate. This is always the fate of all of the members of House Usher is that they have this malady that confounds physicians, and it makes everyone's it shortens everyone's life and they all kind of waste away toward the end mm-hmm. even if they're very young people and this is sort of the the reputation of house of usher and this guy roderick is absolutely buying into the story and so you kind of feel like is this a self-fulfilling prophecy or is there something you know is there magic afoot right exactly especially with the drama of the last act you know, is that an act of God or is that a coincidence? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I feel like we need a little bit of an excursus into sort of the deep Ironborn lore uh, to understand what's happening here. Because I think it it absolutely is going to help us understand the connections between Martin and Poe here. Okay. So... I think everyone knows that everyone listening to this podcast, at least, will know that Heron Hall is named for someone named Heron the Black. And Heron the Black, you know, is sort of like almost a, a figure of legend, but he's left behind this massive house, right? This massive uh, castle. And he is, uh, he's Ironborn. So he is the king of the islands and riverlands. So it's it's really important to know that sort of this guy is Theon Greyjoy's ancestor, if not a, a you know a direct relative or whatever. They both come from that Ironborn culture. And importantly, the Ironborn have this antithetical relationship between their mythology, their religion, the gods that they worship and the Weirwood Tree Network. So this, to me, is is a kind of crucial to understanding why Heron Hall is haunted. And I think that there's maybe a little kernel of that in the paragraph that I read. Um, that 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 there's something about the rotten soil that's coming up from the the trees that's haunting right. this place. And so, um, okay, can I just interject yeah. one fun fact that yeah. there may be uh, another Poe connection with the name Weirwood, 
Um, mm. There's a po- poem called Ulalum, and um, it's it's about a a guy who's despondent uh, one night, and he goes wandering, and then realizes that he's un- subconsciously wandered into the crib who died a year before. And um, in that, they they it's set in the so-called region of Weir, and um, ah. and he talks about. Uh, yeah, in the poem, there's there's a line about the ghoul haunted weir wood. Sorry, the ghoul haunted woodland of weir. Oh, Say that five times fast. Fantastic! I yeah, love it. Sorry, no, that's fantastic. Um, and I'll just reread this: an atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, but which had reeked up from the decayed trees. It says. Mm-hmm. So just to just to remind folks that you know the Ironborn worship the drowned god. And they view the weirwood trees as demon trees, and they call them the yig, which I think is absolutely a, an homage to the old Norse word for terrible. And uh, you know the the yig drassel is sort of the great tree that connects the nine, the nine worlds mm-hmm. um, in Norse lore, and so the ironborn are kind of based on Norse culture. So what they view the the weirwood trees not as of the old gods, they view them as the old demons. And so when Heron arrives at the the god's eye, Heron decides he's going to cut down weirwood trees to create the rafters of his of his great castle. And you kind of see that like this this kind of bespeaks the old Ironboard enmity with the yig. These demon trees are are not to be worshipped; they're to be cut down and and built with. And I think it's this, I think, homage to this poet story, where the house itself, which is situated by a lake, mm-hmm. is absolutely haunted because its its atmosphere comes up from the earth from these rotting trees right. and it's not subtle at all. I feel like Heron Hall is an homage to the house of Usher. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think in both cases, yeah, it's in the house of Usher. He's it's sort of describing how the house is almost like rotting from its core, from its foundations, um, like the family. <laughs> right, 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 uh, right. But you, you know what other family I see a big, parallel with is the Lannisters okay um and not just because they're twins but because they are a, a family so consumed in their own greed that um uh. yeah that they end up well what what happens with you know for instance the Lannisters in the main um a song of ice and fire uh series you they, you start to see them fall apart because they're being eaten from within by this by this greed Interesting. I, I mean, I, all right. So let's talk about the story a little bit more. Our man who's hanging out with, we should probably know his name. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just looked it up and it, it doesn't say his name. It just says his best and only friend. You know, what's interesting. Um. I saw the preview for the house of Usher thing on Netflix and it seems like they are not including the narrator. So we're getting it from Roderick's point of view. That's so interesting. And they also um, added a shape-shifting demon, so whatever, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, so our POV character, uh, who remains nameless, 
He spends some time with his friend, uh, tries to lift his spirits. They do a little bit of music together. They do a little bit of art together. And after a while, you know, he, he spends enough time there that he actually sees the terrible fate of the sister, who seems close to death anyway. And uh, they end up burying her alive? I mean, I guess that's a question, right? Yeah. Did they bury her um, or did they bury her alive? And I think that... I mean, apparently she was alive in the end, yeah. But I have heard it long, 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 many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it, yet I dared not... Oh. Pity me, miserable wretch that I am. I dared not, I dared not speak. We have put her living in the tomb. <laughs> Said I not that my senses were acute? I now tell you that I heard her first feeble movements in the hollow coffin. I heard them many, many days ago, yet I dared not, I dared not speak. And tonight, Ethelred, ah, Ethelred, the breaking of the hermit's door and the death cry of the dragon and the clangor of the shield, say rather, the rending of her coffin and the grating of the iron hinges of her prison and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault. Oh, whither shall I fly? Will she not be here anon? Is she not hurrying to upbraid me for my haste? Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman, I tell you, she now stands without the dog! <laughs> All right. And given the kind of the, the connection between the Riverlands and Harrenhal, I wonder if this is where Lady Stoneheart comes from. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, you know, the Tullys have this connection to the green site and... Right, resurrected from the dead, covered in blood. Yep. Yeah. So it could it could be that this that Lady Stoneheart is sort of an homage to Madeline Usher, who is drudged up from certain death. Well, yeah, who fights her way out of it could, because the worst part of um, the story, you know, the most horrifying part is that her brother, who you know she was his only companion, they were. Twins, not quite in the Lannister way, but, you know, very, they they were all each other had. Mm -hmm. And he said that he could hear her scratching beneath, but didn't, was like too ashamed to let her out or something. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> Just so, so, so horrible. <laughs> uh, and so, of course, she, it's, she returns. Yeah. And right. uh, she, she returns as someone who has been buried alive. And so I, I do think that there's some kind of connection here between the Riverlands and the God's Eye Lake and the the, the great cursed castle and then eventually um you know the the resurrection of of the sister here. Um yeah. I, I noted a few other connections here, but I was I was wondering whether or not these twins the the twin brother and sister here I wonder if this reminds you at all of any of the Targaryens that we meet along the way. Mm, well, yeah, like I said, my brain first went to Lannister with them, but mm. I, I can see also a Targaryen connection. I think in the TV adaptation, it might be more like that. They might, uh, but here we see them so reduced that we only, the only way we see 
you know, we just hear descriptions of uh, the decay, what's decaying in their house. And, you know, the fact that the brother is so pompous and full of himself is an indication that this is a family of, of uh, who's used to having everything they say matter. Um, but they're dying when when we arrive. So we don't get to see them in like their dragon blazing glory. So it's more like uh, maybe um, I mean that, that there are some Targaryens that that we could make that parallel to like literally rotting on the throne yeah, right right yeah i was just thinking like in terms of like the the conversation we had earlier about the children of a particular house are going to act a particular way mm-hmm. and i think that this is you don't see this anywhere more sort of in your face than w- with the targaryen lineage it's almost like there's this magic right. slash psychosis that goes into the makeup of the family tree uh, or the family vine or whatever we want to call it. It's almost like you can't escape the family curse. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something here about, like you, like you mentioned, sort of the, the greed aspect. Like this kind of is inter, intergenerational greed mm-hmm. that it's commenting on. But I also think that you could work this in with, like, we know that certain certain addictions will pass from generation to generation. So, you know, of course we don't want to go too far down this road, but there is a, there is a sense in which, you know, the inclinations of the parents will absolutely bleed into the fates of the children. Uh, You could do that with addiction. You can do that with, with certain kinds of uh, psychological conditions, whether it's by, by way of nature or nurture um, there are certain, for lack uh, lack of a better term, there are certain sins that don't just affect the person who commits the act. Mm-hmm. There are certain sins that will be felt, you know, for generations to come. Absolutely. And I kind of feel I... like Martin likes to play with that. And then, of course, here we have the these, uh, you know, these children of Usher. But one interesting difference is that um, unlike the Targaryens, where there's a lot of infighting, they make clear that the Usher family has but one lineage all the way down. You know, they they did not branch. Um, so they're <laughs> yeah. sort of keeping. So they're keeping, you know, because there was uh, there was a lot of problems um, back during that time with wealthy families where there'd be a lot of children and they divide up the properties and the land holdings just get smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm. So by having one line, they're keeping everything uh, straight down the lineage until this final collapse. Well, which, and yeah, that it's... kind of, it doesn't explicitly say it in the story, but it does make me wonder, like, is this a Targaryen vine problem? Meaning, Wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, uh, meaning that most, most trees branch out because you marry right, outside right. the family. But the right, Targaryens marry do marry within. And of course, mm-hmm. these we see that both the brother and the sister have not married and they've not left the house mm-hmm. and they've, they've become very insular in this way. Right. I think, yeah, because we see with the Targaryens when they do marry out, um, it's like if there are two different branches of Targaryens existing, their instincts will be to prune each other. <laughs> yes. Yes, of course. Um, I really enjoyed rereading this, and uh, I think that it's kind of undeniable that this had some kind of influence on the Hall plot. 
And, you know, may, maybe it's a little, it's just a little headcanon on my part, but I think maybe did plant a seed for the Lady Stoneheart plot as well. Right. I think, yeah, you've convinced me of that. That, that makes sense. <laughs> um, um, do you have any more that you'd like to point out? Um, no, I just, you know, if uh, people read this story and are curious or are curious about the pit and the pendulum, um, I think the more you read of Poe, the more you're going to be like, oh, that reminds me so much of yeah. this character or this motif or, yeah. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you brought up the the homage to the the wood of of uh, the wood of Weir. What what story was that again? It's a poem called um, Ulalane. Okay, all right, that's right. Okay, I'm so Ula glad Lune, that you sorry. mentioned that because I had no idea about that. Yeah, I mean, but it also some people say that that comes from the last name of uh, someone from I think it was the Rolling Stones or something. Oh no, uh, Grateful Dead, and that that Grateful is Dead, I think. I, I mean, I know that that Martin's a big deadhead. Um, and I think Bobby Weir would be sort of a, a good guess. He does include from time to time homages to bands that have been important to him, but it doesn't but the have fact to that be, it's a wood. Yeah. Right. Right. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, an either or thing. I don't think. No, that's true. Uh, Alicia, thank you so much for your time. And um, what is uh, wool shift dust covering presently? Yeah, so we are, uh, despite the d- Dune delay, we will be continuing with uh, at least the first part of that coverage. Uh, and then, of course, yeah, in, in October, we have uh, a special episode coming out for talking about the Netflix adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher. And um, there will be a special bonus reading um, with sound effects of uh, the story by Poe on the in the Woolship Dust Book Club, oh, uh, free for book club members. Fantastic! Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.